You were a big Jane Russell fan back in the day, weren't you? How old do you think I am? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, when you were watching Grandpa's movies, <laughs> Grant, was Gramps a Jane Russell fan? Spectre. Ah. <laughs> the, the Great, great Dive Podcast, Podcast with your buddies buddy, James and Brando. Underwater with Jane Russell was released. <laughs> Kingdom of the Sea was Zale Perry and then uh, Sea Hunt. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You're here with Nelson's Choice himself, old Brando. DA Brando. And Jane Russell's Choice, I heard old Jamesy. Nice way to uh, position yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back with part two of the Voight history of the Voight two hose regulators taking place back in the early days of scuba diving back in the early 1950s when there was one U.S. divers out there. And then slowly all these other companies started uh, coming on board. Um. I've got this little paper that I found over at VintageDoubleHose.com talking about the U.S. Divers Aquamaster being the best regulator in the world. And interestingly enough, they were saying that when Cousteau and Gagnon collaborated on that original regulator in 42, 43, that Gagnon was never satisfied with the performance of the old invention of that regulator. Figures. Sounds like gang on. <laughs> totally. And he just kept innovating and working on it, figured out a way to, to get a better performing regulator that would deliver more gas at depth. The original single-stage units had a smaller orifice. The overpressure, the stream air, the mistral, and the jet streams didn't provide enough air in deep water. And uh, they finally ended with the DA Navy-approved unit requiring a relatively high breathing effort. In the mid-1957, Gagnon produced a prototype in a short run of a new regulator that was going to be called the Aquamaster. This regulator added a Venturi assist to the second stage demand part of the stage, which would later go on to be the new and improved Demand apparatus, scuba regulators. I love scuba regulator history, by the way. (laughs) We are going to be able to make scuba diving regulator history fun and exciting and not just boring old grandpa nerd talk. (laughs) You know why? You know how we're going to do that? No. 
I'm going to segue scuba regulators with something that any good loving kid like you and I that grew up in the 70s and 80s can have fun talking about. Something like booze and a sex. great schoolyard game <laughs> like dodgeball. You remember playing dodgeball when you were a kid? You'd go to jail if you played dodgeball in 2021. Mm. Yeah, they don't play dodgeball anymore, do they? That dodgeball think- has to be so freaking offensive to to this generation. Uh, it's. I don't even think you could play imaginary dodgeball. No, you'd go to jail. It's a hate crime. Just for, just for the <laughs> intent of throwing a ball at another kid's head. It's a hate crime. But did you know, starting back in 1922, William J. Voigt of Worthington, Indiana, started a sporting goods company. It was making a bunch of rubber products. Most popularly for kids of our era was... The Voight rubber. I can still hear the sound of the that that rubber ball hitting the wall or <laughs> hitting some kid's forehead that later hit the wall. But you know that like you know that ringing, echoing bounce of those Voight dodgeballs. Remember those? Yeah. Do I remember them? Hell yeah, yeah. Those are brutal. The guys were playing dodgeball. What were the, the girls were playing the the box game where you, you bounce the Oh, it's Foursquare? Foursquare. We used to have, like, Foursquare tournaments, man, on our playground. I mean, the the Foursquare blacktop area was just... Yeah, yeah. It was brutal. It was, like, audience, you know, it was like a a gang, not a gang fight, but, you know, you know how, like, a spontaneous group erupts around, like, a a major fight? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what it was like with the Foursquare. Just, there was an audience and... Like, if you could hold that first square for a while, you were a celebrity. You're autographing those balls. <laughs> <laughs> what later came to our schoolyard as a kid was another Voight product, the tetherball. Tetherball? We didn't get into that too much, did you guys? It was pretty big, eh? Oh, a tetherball got to be like a big. Oh, yeah. Big game in our, our school. Yeah, Voight was huge in the, uh, the school ball market. They had it. I think they were just big in sports. Sporting. Yeah. Kickball. Did you guys play kickball at school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kickball was fun. It never it never took off like, uh, like I say, like Foursquare did. Skateboards took off. That was right when skateboards were starting. You know, in the mid-70s, they started to, to take off and uh, their popularity. Everybody was on a skateboard. And you know what else was big? Uh, yo-yos. It was huge. Everybody had a yo-yo. Duncan Butterfly. Could you walk the dog? Oh, I could walk the dog. I'd do the little swing. I wasn't bad. Yeah, I, I, I went with some of the fads. I'm not complete anarchist. Well, Voight was the major rubber sporting good product producer. Started getting into masks and fins and... Also, those good old dodgeballs and kickballs. During the 1940s, they were also making inflatable boats and hip waders, and that's how they got contracted. You know, we talked last week about old Owen Churchill and the CNET company contracting them to make some masks and fins. And in 1946, they say in this article we were looking at from the Journal of Diving History, that Willard Voigt 
would take the reins of the company, and by the 1950s, Voight had their own line of masks, fins, and accessories. And with Renee Sports, CNET, and Fisher Sporting Goods was one of the first four equipment suppliers to advertise in the premier issue of the Skin Diver, December 1951. All right, so in in the mid-50s, old Voigt was making their masks and fins, and they were seeing what was happening in that recreational scuba world. And as we mentioned last week, they had made an agreement with La Spirotechnique, uh, which held those Cousteau Gagnon patents, and were you know going to introduce their own line of scuba regulators. And the engineering team over there got to work. And old Ed La Rochelle mentions to us that to customize the two regulators, Voigt designed the front regulator cover with six symmetric indents to give a star-type appearance around the center circle where the label would go. The regulator cover was chrome-plated over brass. The rest of the exterior regulator parts would be brushed nickel chrome and sealed with seven box clips. A green-colored round label was placed in the center circle. Since Voigt made hoses of all types for other industries, they chose to custom color their hoses and the clear, easy mouthpiece and Tinnerman clamps by coloring them a near forest green, making it their signature color, which was included in their logo, which was right in timing because it was in the mid-50s where uh, everybody, uh, you know, Voight started printing color catalogs and they could start showing off these fancy colors. And in February of 1956... Skin Diver Magazine had a little section of new products that they had, you know, that was coming out for the people to see. And the old Voigt regulators were featured in that section. Uh-huh. Originally, they had, they had two lungs, the VR2 and the VR1. Voigt Regulator 2 and Voigt Regulator 1, the 2 and the 1 stage double hose regulators. Healthways. Both. Healthways was not part of Voight, eh? I just thought Voight Healthways were together. Not at this point, anyway. Yeah, yeah uh, they were different. And then who was it that had the um, the water lung? The water lung ended up coming out there, too. Um, the water lung. The water lung. It was, a big, uh, it was a big company at the time. It'll come to me. Well, there was five American companies. Was it an American company? Yeah. Healthways, Decor. Swim Master, U.S. Divers. Swim Master was Voigt, I think. It was Sportsways. There you Sportsways. go. Sportsways. Yes. They came up. Sportsways what? So written on the regulators, Brando. Yes. Was the Voigt Lung, two-stage, Navy-approved, WJ Voigt Rubber Corporation. And then on the other one, it was the Voigt Lung Overpressure Breather. W.J. Voigt Rubber Corporation. Ah. But they also included that 
Scafandra Autonome, the U.S. patent number, and Cousteau Gagnon as required by the agreement with U.S. divers. So they had to give acknowledgement that they were using that Aqualung regulator, Aqualung patent. It was just made up with all the new fancy Voight box clips and cool graphics and uh, colored hoses. But we know who will really design this regulator. <laughs> well, Brando, did you know that Voight would do very well with their new scuba lineup of products during their first three years? Because they already had a big distribution of their products in sporting goods, in sporting goods stores all over the country. And sales would boost when the movie Underwater was released, starring Jane Russell. And old Ed La Rochelle says that the entire cast wore Voight Churchill fins, and co-star Richard Egan endorsed the fins in an advert for old Voight. You were a big Jane Russell fan back in the day, weren't you? How old do you think I am? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, when you were watching Grandpa's movies? <laughs> Grant was Gramps a Jane Russell fan? No, I don't. I don't really know that. I can't answer that truthfully. But, but really, who wasn't? I mean, she was uh, pretty popular back in that that era. I remember Jane Russell from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes when she was with Marilyn Monroe. Ah, it's a classic. Now that movie could not even the title couldn't even be talked about right now. <laughs> it was a different time back then mm. yeah yeah it was ed tells us that around the same time television was airing a half hour documentary program called kingdom of the sea hosted by bob stevenson and narrated by john craig from the mid 50s and well into 58 zale perry would have many appearances in the series and guess what? Voight provided the masks and fins for the show. And later, when their Voight lung became available, Zale would use the entire Voight scuba line in the show. So did you see that Howard Hughes was the producer of that movie Underwater? Jane Russell in Underwater. I was just curious if he uh, had a stake in Voight or was pushing the whole scuba gear. Well, the timing of the movie came out well just because it was the big thing. You know, scuba was blossoming. It was an easy way to see a good-looking gal in a bikini, but, you know, tell your wife you're actually looking at it at the, the movie because of the interesting new scuba equipment. <laughs> it really, you know, the, the, the movie really set up the classic scuba movie which isn't really much unlike the deep was or into the blue was you know with a couple searching for some sunken treasure down in the caribbean they come across the shipwreck with treasure yeah then a bunch of uh angry mean shark hunters you know wanna get in and, and steal the money and it's a big battle <laughs> Gold and Gold. precious gems, a bottom of the ocean, shark-infested waters. It's a, 
We should make our own version of Underwater. Okay, let's you do it. Let's do it. Great Dive Podcast presents Under the Surface of the Lake. <laughs> Under the surface of H2O. Below water. I don't know. I think if we keep brainstorming here, I think we'll come up with the perfect title. Are we just basically going to rip off the movie Underwater? Just, just blatantly, uh, no shame, rip it off? It's called artistic licensing. <laughs> yes, well, uh, instead of you know us being attacked by a bunch of local shark hunters, well, they any shark hunters would be the bad guys, like the real bad guys. People would like to see ooh. them die. Ooh, that's a good point. Yes. So illegal, we get shark uh, poachers, some illegal shark finners. Yeah. Find us bringing up some gold treasure from the bottom. They want some of that gold. You know Typical shark finners. Did you know it took three years to film the movie Underwater? And $3 million? It was a million dollars over budget. I heard it was a, uh, they had a $2 million budget for that movie. And they went to three. That's crazy. Back in that day. Back in 55, a million bucks in 1955. Forget about it. That's a lot of that's a lot of box office sales at how much was a movie back in the 50s? A nickel? <laughs> you act like I was there. How the hell do I know? <laughs> well, was the was the price of movies back in the 50s, Brando, when you were there? <laughs> Dude, I'm not approaching 100. Yeah, it was about yeah, it was about 50 cents for a movie ticket in 1955. Howard Hughes was a big bra designer. Did you know that? So Howard Hughes had interest in underwater stuff. You know, he worked with the CIA on a... Uh, designing designing bras? Well, no, actually designing ships. But on a side note... He also liked bras. He also was a bra designer. Before Victoria's Secret, there was just a twinkle in the eye of every top-heavy gal and prepubescent boy. Hughes tried his hand at creating a better boulder holder. This is according oh, to yeah. the VintageNews.com bra designer in a story from 2018 by Barbara Stepko. But, yeah, old, old uh, Howard Hughes who was big into films. He obviously produced the movie Underwater, but in 43, he produced and directed a movie called The Outlaw. It was uh, about Western legends Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, Pat Garrett, and uh, it was just kind of a fun movie. It wasn't like an Oscar winner or anything, but his leading lady was Jane Russell, or rather Jane Russell's breasts, according to uh, this article. <laughs> Which Hughes was fixated with. <laughs> He's a boob guy. I mean, I mean, some guys are boob guys. What can you say? Some guys are, you know, leg guys. Some guys are butt guys. Some guys are boob guys. Obviously, Howard Hughes was a boob guy. If you are one of the richest men in the world and you are a boob guy, great things are going to happen for boobs, I think. I wonder if he designed that, you know, sexy red bikini that Jane Russell was wearing in Underwater. Could have, could have. I uh, I don't know. I think he's more into just the bras, according to this article. But um, he was watching their daily filming, and 
he wasn't happy with the um, the bras. So, you know, he was a genius engineering dude. And so he put that genius engineering mind to work on a, on a bra. That's not a bra. <laughs> now that's a bra. Anyway, he designed it like a cantilevered bra, which was the underwire bra for Jane Russell. Jane Russell was less than impressed with Hugh's handiwork. Oh, now the, the story gets juicy. Howard decided it wouldn't be as hard to design a bra than it would to be to design an airplane. He was wrong. Well, Jane Russell had 38 Ds, I hope you know. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. I was wondering. Those are like the people that, that argue about how cold it is underwater. I had 39. Well, I had 38. Okay. Now, I'm in the background. I'm going, I was just cold. It's cold. It could have been 60, and it was just cold. It was cold. You know, you mentioned his um, that, that red bikini, or not bikini, but bathing suit. In that movie yeah. Outlaw, which came out in, in the 40s there, there's a picture here of Jane. She's wearing almost identical as a dress, as a short dress, that red. So maybe he did have something to do with that. Well, it was, I mean, for her, like back in those days, it was, according to CafeMom.com, in this article after uh, old Jane Russell passed away, that her boobs <laughs> and the marketing machine behind those boobs made her a household name, and that was Howard Hughes. Yes. But the, fun, the, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, and this author in this article, Heather Chat says that you look at those photos now, and it's nothing. Yeah. yeah. A tight blouse, uh, shoulder <laughs> askew a little bit, a little, like, it's sexy. A, it's a little conservative. Glance. <laughs> but, like, like, back then, like, complete sex symbol. Yeah. Nowadays, Disney princesses are... Uh, uh, yeah, more risque. Yeah, more risque, yeah, yeah. Skin diver Voice. action, aqua lung thrills. Come on below on the new exciting underwater world with Jane Russell as you've never seen her before. Voight's biggest promotional break came in 1958 when the TV series Sea Hunt, starring Lloyd Bridges as Mike Nelson, was launched. The company provided all of the skin and scuba diving equipment for all divers in the show. And old Mike Nelson would become a huge influence on everybody sitting in front of a television show in those days. And they all got to see Voight diving equipment. And when their interest sparked of wanting to learn how to scuba dive themselves and be their own Mike Nelson, you know what gear they wanted. Of course. Voight. So you didn't mention that at 1940, or 1940, 1957... Voight was uh, acquired by AMF. I'm getting there. Oh, because you were in 1958. You, you jumped to 1958 with the release of Sea Hunt. That's all. That's all. Am I going? I'm, I'm way off the, the script, no, we're, aren't we're, I? We're right on there right <laughs> right because that's where, that's where they're going. This okay. is what's, what's happening. You know, in, uh, in the, the late 50s, uh, Lloyd Bridges would switch over to diving the blue and gray sportsman regulator from the earlier episodes where he was using the green-hosed earlier model of the sportsman regulator. That newer one, that newer VCR2 model, 
the blue and gray one, Lloyd Bridges would uh, start an advertising campaign that Voight would pay him for and become a huge national phenomenon. But right around that same time, in 1958, is when W.J. Voight Rubber Corporation was purchased by American Machinery and Foundry. See, I'm showing 1957 here. Not that it's a big deal. That's a lot of what I would see when I was a kid growing up in the dive shop is all the stuff that, you know, uh, that was even usable then because everybody was switching over to the single hose stuff long since by then was the AMF Voigt. So he says here that the first AMF logo alongside the Voigt logo can be found on the 1959 Voigt catalog and in the 1960. The two logos are on the catalogs and in advertisements, but would not be seen on scuba regulators themselves until 1962. Did you see that AMF logo added? So my old boss gave me his double hose regulator that was issued to him in the 60s. And it what was, kind was uh, it? It was a uh, 50 Fathom Voight. Ah, the 50 Fathom. You don't want to go 50 fathoms, man. That was a regulator that was one of the first that was actually tested to be able to perform in 300 feet of water. Insane. Ed La Rochelle tells us that in 1959, the two-hose Voight compensated regulator VCR2 had its debut and was the first wholly designed and engineered regulator by the Voight team. The dark blue label was printed with Voight 50 Fathom, which was related to the regulator successfully passing tests to 300 feet in a tank-tested dive. Also labeled was the word compensated and a line stating easy breathing at all depths, which was something no other company ever boasted before on its label. How dare they ever boast something like that? Um, in 1961... The Viking 50 Fathom now sported a chromed front cover on a brushed nickel chrome body, sealed with a polished stainless steel band. Sounds like a beauty. And then, in 1962, Brando, the AMF Voigt engineering staff designed another mechanism and called it the V-22. It is a one-stage, push-to-open with a deluxe Venturi assist for quick delivery with minimum moving parts and a simple lever-adjusting system, this mechanism was placed in the same case body used for the Viking chromed 50 Fathom and came with a stainless steel band and gray hoses and mouthpiece and custom vinyl clamps. The label reads Polaris 50 AMF Voigt and Made in the USA. And you know what was very unique and popularized the Polaris regulator, don't you? The old Thunderballers. Exactly. That's exactly Thunderballers. right. The old Thunderballers. Classic. If, if nothing more than for the underwater scenes, it's a classic. Correct. And it would become like the most sought after of all the Voigt regulators. Not the old one. Not yeah. the originals. As much as this one here, you know, the Polaris 50 that was used in the movie Thunderball by Emilio Largo. So good old Thunderball. 
there's another show with a couple of uh, bikini-laden, scuba-diving, double-hose-having, spear-gunning. <laughs> Plus all the underwater, you know, the vehicles. They had those underwater vehicles. You see some of those. They're amazing. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're exciting, interesting stuff to see. Now, do you remember the Bond girls from Thunderball? Oh, my Lord, no. It wasn't Pussy Galore, was it? No. There was Domino. Domino. She was Thunderball? I thought she was uh, Live and Let Die. She she was the one in the black and white bikini that was actually scuba diving. Okay. So you know that Thunderball made the cover of Life magazine. James Bond, and he's in like a torn-up wetsuit on the cover of Life magazine. Which is a big deal, you know, back in Life the day. Magazine, yeah, Life Magazine back in the day was a very big deal. Yeah, so that was th- that year that Thunderball came out, which, you know, I think this was the January issue in 1966. But then he was also on the cover of Skin Diver Magazine that same year. Oh, yeah, because divers were, were into it. it oh, was, yeah. It was like... Uh, the movie for scuba divers, like when Jaws came out, yeah, later, right, yeah, what you know, but that poster of Thunderball of you know James Bond and the the red shorty wetsuit holding the spear gun with the the Bond babes all around him. I mean that that's classic scuba diver. <laughs> right that's there. what got a lot of people into scuba diving. You know, it's it's that marketing ploy, like this. You know, I think it's the human psychology to automatically insert yourself into that ad that you see, right? Because you oh, desire yeah, yeah. to be there. And all you got to do is, you know, there's the James Bond image in your head, but then there's the reality of, uh, you know, a fat guy in a, in a wetsuit, which isn't pretty to look at. A bunch of other fat guys in wetsuits around them, not, not beautiful women. <laughs> there's reality... And then there's the image in his mind. Is what I'm you know, a buddy of mine, when he turned 40, threw a, threw a big party. The party was themed. Like, you had to come dressed up as, yeah. like, a, a secret agent, Bondy, villain, or hero kind of guy. And I showed up in my shorty wetsuit, spear gun, a little uh, back <laughs> backpack on with, like, a fake tank on. Yeah. Big old knife on my leg. Now, did you have a martini that shaken, not stirred? Yes, Miss Money Penny. Yes, Miss Money Penny. <laughs> so in 1962, Brando, the W.J. Voigt Rubber Corporation was sold once again and purchased by Swimmaster. And they started making in uh, 66. Swimmaster would become the pro line of scuba equipment for AMF Voigt. And the Trieste Regulator came about, which was named after a famous bath escape called the Trieste in the 50s and 60s that made a record dive into the Mariana Trench, 35,797 feet deep. Can you believe that? Well, hell yeah, I believe it. You know that Trieste, though, is a, it's a city in Italy. Trieste. It's a seaport. A seaport. In northeast Italy. Yeah, it was uh, manufactured by a company 
that was in the free territory of Trieste on the border between okay. Italy and Yugoslavia, which is now in Italy. That's how the name was chosen. Yeah, by Auguste Picard, which was, uh, he was the son of one of uh, Jacques' old buddies. You remember from, right, uh, Jacques Picard. Well, no, Jacques Picard was the son of August Picard, Auguste Picard. And, and uh, Don Walsh, Navy lieutenant, U.S. Navy lieutenant, they were the ones that, I guess, piloted it for Project Necton. Can you describe to the people what the bath escape is? I can, uh, but will I know? No, they're going to just have to let their imaginations run wild. Actually, it's just an underwater uh, a submarine for extremely deep use, if you, if you want to make it in extremely simple terms. Right, but it's not really like a submarine like you submarine, would consider a right. submarine. It, this is like a... A it submarine like, submarine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a submarine submarine. It's a submarine submarine. It, that would be like, you know, that gigantic John Deere tractor that, that's got wheels on it that are like 12 feet high, the wheels alone, that's out in the middle of like the giant field and farm, like clearing out a football field's worth of grain in one big swoop. Yeah. It'd be like calling that a lawnmower. Yeah, I guess. I, I guess you're right. <laughs> this was just an extremely high-tech. When I say high-tech, we're not talking computer technology. We're talking just its engineering and construction to withstand the pressures at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. I mean, there's a lot you can read, in, read about it that's you know pretty geeky. And uh, I'm sure somebody like our friend old Tom from from our Zoom meetings would would love this stuff and have something to say about it. But most people don't really care about how much Oh, yeah, well, well that, uh, that, that uh, Trieste took old Picard and Walsh down to uh, the bottom of that Mariana Trench, deeper than Mount Everest is tall, by the way. Woo! So the old swim master Trieste R-22 would become the smallest and most compact two-hose regulator on the market. All stainless steel parts, easy to adjust, coming uh, to their what would later be like their classic chrome on black look. And it, too, would go through a couple of uh, variations over the years, adding at one point a J-valve reserve assembly into the, into the regulator, the V1JR. And by 1970, old Swimmaster would be committed to the single hose regulator. The MR-12 would become their top dog, and the Triesta uh, was moved into the Voigt line and renamed the Triesta II. And uh, that's where we'll kind of uh, veer things off, because... Uh, when the MR-12 line was born, that's where, you know, AMF Voigt, Swimmaster Voigt uh, would later become, you know, the Mare's MR-12, MR-12-3, and up into uh, the abyss as we know it today is a, still a classic regulator out there. But that's kind of, um, I thought that was kind of an interesting, fun little article to run across and something very different from what we've been doing here on the Great Dive Podcast. I thought that people would be ready for a little bit of a change. 
Yeah, I hope they they were entertained by by our history lesson, if anything else. The uh, you know how the slow start kind of got a little boost from the media. I should say the slow start of scuba got a little boost by the media in the sense of uh, old Lloyd Bridges and Sean Connery and uh, Jane Russell. Jane Russell and Zay, Zale Perry. Just goes to show you how how uh, the big screen and the little screen they shape our our reality here. Yeah, it's a good shout out to the girls as we start approaching up. What's going to be next week is International Women's Dive Day coming up. Oh, and I got a doozy for us for next week. When is uh, men's diving uh, day slash week? Because I'm, I'm going to work on sexist son of a bitch. I'm sorry. I, I, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back. I'll go back to shutting my mouth and, and celebrating <laughs> everybody else. Cheers. <laughs> um, I have a very politically incorrect story for next week. Nice. Finally. In celebration of Women's International Dive Day next week. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Then. So I think our audience is going to enjoy next week's show and. The ladies that are out there, I, I think you'll like it too. It's it's good. It's a it's a fun look. Speaking at, um, oh, at a men's perspective of uh, lady divers back in the late 1950s. I think you're just trying to ruffle feathers and get the uh, the whole activist movement coming after us because there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Am I? Am I am I getting close? Am I getting warm to your motivations? I think that is spoken like a true <laughs> thunderballer. <laughs> All right, thunderballers. Yeah, thunderballers. We'll uh, get out there and go diving, thunderballers. All right, let's sign these logbooks. Brando, that regulator was navy approved scafandra autonome spectacular <laughs> oh here we go sweet da aquamaster you're diving jamesy <laughs> i was just wondering <laughs> what the dw means on the dw dive master aquamaster swim master void aqua lung mistral regulator means is that a DX in your jet stream, or are you just happy to see me? It's a DY, actually, and that Venturi assist. You know, we could really go get into the geek conversation on this uh, signing of the logbooks, because if you, if you just read a couple paragraphs about these regulators, it's sad. It's sad. If you, if, if you were at a party and you saw two guys... You walked by the punch bowl, and there's two guys talking about the DA, the DYDW, Aquamasters, and going to AMF Void and AMR2. You'd walk by, you'd pause for a second, and then you'd look at them, and you'd just keep walking. You would keep walking. Say, don't don't even get into that conversation. No, we're going to go over and <laughs> talk to Jane Russell. I was going to say, <laughs> then there's the, there's the uh, male chauvinist pigs in the other corner talking about Jane Russell, Zale Perry, Jane Mansfield, bras. Howard Hughes' bra session, yes. That, that'd be the group we, we were uh, running. Yeah. That's <laughs> why Great Time Podcast is good for everybody. We, we get a little bit of everything. Word. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Safe time. Safe time.
double check that 1958 if you got some geek out there that's gonna because i've got 1957 oh wait there's a uh void is purchased 1958 hmm well 58 57 potato potato <laughs>